Welcome to How I Got Here. Thanks for joining me today for a conversation with Chief Accounting Officer and Corporate VP at Microsoft, Alice Jola. This interview is part of an ongoing series for FEI Engage. For the FEI members in attendance today, don't forget to sign up to be mentors through our new mentorship program. And for the FEI Engage subscribers in attendance, please take a moment after this session to enroll as a mentee. And now a little bit about Alice. As an expert in financial processes, she leads a world-class diverse global team responsible for corporate accounting, financial reporting, shared services, business intelligence, global workplace services, controls and compliance, and LinkedIn and Nuance controllership. Before joining Microsoft in 2007, Alice completed a two-year industry fellowship with the FASB and also served as member of the Financial Accounting Standards Advisory Council from 2019 until 2022. She's a member of the Washington State Governor's Council of Economic Advisors and a supporter of professional and civic organizations, including FEI's Board of Directors, where she serves as National Vice Chair. And she's a member of the Committee of Corporate Reporting, AICPA, and NABA's Corporate Advisory Board. As you'll soon learn, Alice is passionate about diversity, equity, and inclusion. She's benefited from mentorship and is a mentor herself, and she has a wealth of industry experience. Alice, thank you for speaking with me today. Thank you for having me, Olivia. I am glad to spend this time with you today. So am I. I'd love it, Alice, if you could start with your college experience and how you became interested in accounting in the first place. You know, Olivia, I would like to say that um, when I decided to attend college that I had a laid out plan that I was going to be an accountant and that was going to be my major, but I didn't. Um, All I knew was that I wanted to go to college, but I really had no, I grew up in a very rural environment and had no no role model. So it's not like I, I could look at, at, at my parents or other family members or people in the community and say, this is what I wanted to do. But what I, I was good at math and I was good at the sciences. So it was like, okay, I'm gonna be a doctor. Well, that lasted all of my first semester in school when I realized, how am I gonna be in the medical profession when I pass out at the thought of seeing blood, not even the sight of blood, but just the thought of seeing blood. And so I took this course that said, you know, kind of looked at your skills, what were you good at? And it came back and said, business. So I was like, well, business. And my, my, my thought process was, well, I'm gonna choose accounting because accountants can do general business, but those that majored in general business couldn't do accounting. So that's how I landed on accounting. But then when I reflect back on it, I was actually doing accounting work as a child. My my dad had all kinds of different businesses growing up. And before the days of computers were readily available, the days when people still paid by cash, he would bring uh, cash home from the restaurant slash nightclub. I would count the cash, uh, write it in a little notebook, how much was collected for the day. I was doing uh, their taxes before I was, while I was still in high school. So I guess I was really, when I think about it, I was just bound to be an accountant, even though I didn't realize that enrolling in college. 
I love that. And you said that you grew up in kind of a rural environment. Uh, <clears throat> and you and I have talked previously about your dad. And I know he's really impacted you in, in a lot of ways. But tell me a little bit more about kind of the work ethic that he instilled in you. Yes, uh, my my dad had no formal education, but what he did have was a strong sense of working hard, so really a strong work ethic and a strong sense of respect in the value system and how you treat people. So I grew up where, you know, you had to get up early. We had to get up early and do something. He, he would be like, even if you find yourself needing to take a nap during the day, get up. The world is moving. There are things that need to be done. He was very much about excellence in education for for myself and for my brother. And really, you know, the, the value system he instilled in us about treating people with respect. It didn't matter what walk of life they they were in. He would often say, it doesn't matter if it's the the homeless person that's on the corner or if you're going into a bank to negotiate and try to get a loan. You treat everybody with the same respect. And that is something that, you know, I remember, you know, today and really kind of helped to shape how I how I work, how I approach life, how I think about treating people really with with respect. And I and that makes a lot of sense. I'd, I'd love for you to elaborate a little bit on how you would describe your leadership style. I would say my my leadership style has really, uh, over the years, uh, naturally kind of evolved. I would say, but at the core of my of my leadership style, I would be I would say it has to be excellence. It is kind of leading with leading with excellence by example. It's back to here at Microsoft today. Uh, we use some some leadership principles that that we talk about that that's grounded in uh, generating energy, uh, creating clarity, delivering results. Those all fundamentally, I would say, shape kind of my how my leadership style shows up today. Now, I also like to say, grounded in that is. I find myself um, a little bit of, I would say, a rebel. And I use the term rebel in the most positive of ways, meaning that I believe that you only grow through pushing the envelope. And so you can't be stagnant. And so that kind of challenging, well, is the status quo, is that really the way you should operate? Is the status quo not only sufficient for to drive results uh, and have impact today, but how do you drive impact thinking about it tomorrow, next year, five years out? So that really being about pushing the envelope, really saying, you know, uh, enough, you know, doing the minimum, it's just never enough for excellence. So I kind of uh, I like to push push the envelope. People people that work closely with me uh, will say one thing. Uh, you always will know. Uh, you will know what Alice is thinking. Uh, 
uh, I believe in transparency. So I try to lead with a, from a very transparent point of view. Uh, with found core to it is kind of in ethical manners, which is so critical for the way in which we, for the profession, for the accounting profession, for companies. So all of that kind of just grounded in my value system shapes how I really lead and how I show up, uh, you know, pivots to what are the priorities that I'm having to deliver on on any given day. And you said that your leadership style has really evolved over time. Tell me about what it was like managing your first team, because I know it was pretty early on, maybe only a few years out of college. And what was that like for you? Yes, it was uh, it was very early in my career. I probably had only been out of college about three years. And so there was uh, I had landed at one of our manufacturing locations at the time I was in the chemical industry and my first role uh, into corporate America out of college was uh, in Charleston, West Virginia. And I went to college uh, about an hour away from home uh, in Louisiana. And so it probably, as I look back, no matter where that that first move away from home would have been, it would have probably been difficult. And so it was it was a difficult it was difficult for me that first li- year living in uh, West Virginia. So I said, you know what? Um, I would like to transfer. If possible, I would like to transfer. And I was able to get a transfer to one of the company's manufacturing locations on the Gulf Coast in Texas. And I land there. And so now I am, I've come from, I've come from the corporate environment. So I'm transitioning from the corporate environment and I'm going into this manufacturing environment, which had a culture all of its own. And so after I was there about six months, I was asked to to lead a team. And I'm leading a team of people who had years of experience doing their job. And so how I initially approached it was, I have to first listen and understand what are their roles. I have to uh, understand their skill sets, what are their levels of expertise. And I have to also be open to, open to acknowledging, I don't necessarily know what you're doing. I don't know how to do your job. And as a manager, it is not my role to do your job, but it's my role to be an unblocker, to be able to help you be successful. And so I, same principles I employ today if I take on a new team. It's really about listening. It's about learning. It's about recognizing the value that people that people do bring to their roles and seeing how can you help them bring even more to it. So the principles that I use uh, in that first role uh, as a manager or the principles that I still use today. Now that's not to say that I didn't learn and uh, 
have some maybe some missteps <laughs> along the way as I, as I look back on some of the things I said, would I have done certain things differently? Absolutely. It's all part of the learning curve. The other thing that I would say that that I learned in that first role as as a manager is people want to know that you care. And people want to know that you care about what's important to them. And so it's really critical about to get to know people. And when you are a first line manager, as I was in that first role, it's a lot easier to get to know people than when you're leading a a large team as which I do today. But I think it's to know everyone, really. But it's so important, especially to those uh, first-line managers, to to really get to know your teams. And that's also been something that's been highlighted uh, during, during the pandemic. One of the manager skills that we've had to emphasize is that as people have gone through different things in life, whether it's the pandemic, whether it's uh, balancing maybe health challenges, caring for others, all those things that round out who an individual is other than just coming to work, they still need to know and want to know that their manager cares and their manager knows what's important to them. And so that that's key. And you can do that in a lot of different different ways. When I was in that first role, it was a small town and it was important. They had in the days of like bowling leagues and things like that. So I did the things with uh, with my team to really get ingrained in the location's culture and then become a part of the team. Now I might say, now look, I'm still a terrible bowler today, but I went, I showed up and I participated so I can become really a part of the team. I'm glad you brought that up about, you know, maybe participating in some activities that, you know, your team enjoys that you might not particularly enjoy because uh, there's, we talk a lot about being your authentic self, bringing your authentic self to your work. And I know that, especially with the younger generation, it's uh, very important to them. But I also think you, you bring up an interesting point about, you know, meeting people where they are. Absolutely. and I think that that's an important skill as well. Yes, and I think that you can, I don't believe you have to compromise and I would, I'm not suggesting that that you compromise your authentic self, but there is something between compromising your authentic self and respecting or integrating into the culture of, the, of an org that you may join. And so, for example, in that uh, if you join an org and let's just say um, the org uh, likes to, here in Seattle, uh, bike, for example, uh, outdoor activities are very, very important to the culture. And maybe that's something that you don't enjoy, but you can introduce your team to something that you do enjoy. And so there are still ways to be your authentic self. One of the things that 
that uh, some of the teams um, have done recently around introducing themselves to others is uh, maybe bringing foods that represent your culture, sharing, uh, perhaps, um, you know, doing video series about things in your culture that's important to you. So there's a way to, I would say it's, it's a blending of who you are, what's important to you, and what's important to the team and assimilating into the culture of an organization that you join. It's not an either or. That's a great point. And there's a question from the audience that I think has to do with with what we're talking about. Uh, Lily Singh recently did a TED Talk stating that a seat at the table is simply not enough to ensure businesses have diverse ideas and opinions. Are there things you have done through your career to adjust the table to let it be known that you belong? I think it's a great question. So... Absolutely, um, a seat a seat at the table is not it's not enough. Um, I've heard the analogy of if you invite your invite someone to to dinner, you know that's the invitation to join. But then you make sure that they are that they are comfortable where they're seated, and then when you go the next step to make sure that. You have understood. You understand what are their dietary restrictions. So you are doing everything to set them up to have a pleasant experience. Now, once they're there at your at this dinner, you have to engage with them. You have to make sure that they feel like there's an open environment to to be a part of the conversation that occurs at the dinner table. So it's not simply about inviting somebody and say, well, they'll just eat whatever is on the menu and they'll make do. That's the same thing in corporate corporate America. It's not simply about hiring someone, giving them a seat at the table, but once you give them that seat at the table, how are you going to make sure that their voice is heard? And that is on not just the the guests or the person that's been invited, but it's also the responsibility of everybody else who's who's already seated at that table. And so there are ways, you know, there are tactical ways that you can do it. You can make sure uh, maybe if someone is coming to the table for the first time, maybe you reach out to them before the meeting. And you could say, okay, this is how this meeting usually operates. Maybe you wanna give them some insights to the types of questions or what can they expect from the discussion once they're, once they're at the table. And then once they're there in the meeting, you can make sure you know if you're at the table that their voice is heard. If you see that uh, maybe they tried to make a point and they couldn't quite get it in, or they haven't responded, you could say, just pause and say, uh, Olivia, uh, what do you think about that? Or, you know, previously you had worked in that area. What was your experience of managing these types of issues at your prior company, for example? So there's ways to bring them in. And then you can give them, make sure that they have 
onboarding mentees or buddies. And this, Olivia, this uh, recently uh, happened to me. And so it's, I recently joined the, the board of a public company and I had my, my first meeting and someone at the table said to me, Alice, I'm going to. Now, this person wasn't the chair of the board. It was just another board member that was there. So it doesn't need to be who's the most senior person in the room. It could be everybody that's seated at the table already needs to make sure that the new person has the space to contribute. And the person said to me, Alice, I'm going to assign this person, I've already talked to her, to be your onboarding buddy. And so if you have any questions that come up, maybe you don't feel comfortable asking them at the table. We know it's a lot of information you've been digesting over the last two days. She is available. Call her anytime. We had the opportunity to spend some time together and connect. So somebody else who was at the table, not the leader, created that space and that opportunity for me to feel heard. And that's what we all have to do when we're at the table and we've made room for someone else to join. We have to prepare the opportunity for them to then be heard. And that's the part of, of inclusion that it's, that's key. You know, diversity, great, but if people don't feel included, diversity is for nothing. It's more than just having representation in numbers. It's really being a, it's really about getting the most value from having that diversity at the table. And that doesn't happen without inclusion. Absolutely. Earlier, you described yourself as a bit rebellious. Uh, you like thinking outside the box. You've been at Microsoft for, I think, 16 years. Is that right? Almost. Yes. Almost 16 years. So, you know, I'm assuming that that's sort of how you keep things interesting is by uh, pushing yourself and trying to be creative where you can. Um how can those who are watching continue to grow in their careers at the same company or, or perhaps in the same industry? Yeah. Um, Olivia, I would say, I would venture to say without any data, uh, any statistics readily available there, I looked at that a company that stays the same doesn't really survive. So all su successful companies are constantly growing and evolving. And so with that growth and evolution that happens at a company, you can be at the same company and you can take on different roles in that same company. You can take on expanded roles, but there are also cases where you can stay in the same role and in the same kind of field, like we've had some that have stayed maybe on the same accounting teams, but they've gotten, they've worked on different projects. They've done different stretch assignments. They've seen, been through the evolution as the company is, is growing and industries continue to change. So even if you stay in the same industry, so if you're in, if you're in tech like myself, uh, the tech industry is is constantly evolving. If you're in in a manufacturing, 
our world, it's it's changing also. And so you can stay in the same in the same discipline, same company, same industry, but it's all about continuing to take on new sets of experiences to continue to grow. So, you know, as you said, industries are changing so rapidly. Before we started our interview, we talked a little bit about the news coming out of the banking world. And uh, I'm wondering how you've learned to kind of pivot and react to current events, whether in Silicon Valley or nationally or even globally. Yes, one of the things uh, that's key to being continuing to drive impact and be successful in, in any role is you must be agile. So you must be able to adapt. There's often you may have a great laid out plan. You may have a sense of priorities or these are the things that you plan to uh, accomplish that this day, this week, you know, this month, but maybe the business has a different need depending upon what's happening in the in the environment at that given moment. So you have to be able to say, you know what, that was my agenda, that was my priorities for the day, but it doesn't align with the priorities of what the organization of what the team needs at this moment. So it's about being able to be agile, to be able to adapt, to be flexible, to solve whatever the problem is that needs to be solved. So it's about staying in tune to what the business needs are and you have to flex to that. And so I know there have been days, uh, including this past weekend, where um, I may have had uh, on my agenda uh, to just rest, but sometimes uh, things come up and uh, the best laid plans often get get disrupted. And so uh, flexibility is the key. Flexibility, being able to uh, look at things and say, how do I navigate through issues quickly? And and I like to use the, I kind of use this, this saying a lot, Olivia, is it's not about finding a perfect solution or a perfect answer. It's tomorrow. It's about finding a good solution today. So being able to act with haste to solve business problems is key. I love that. <clears throat> we have a lot of questions about, you know, your your role as a leader. Uh, and so I'm going to try to get to all of these before we move on. Uh, one question that we got, how important is it to remind others that you must be a team player to succeed? You know, sometimes I take that, um, honestly, Olivia, sometimes I take it for granted. But uh, you, an individual, is not successful without the team. And so when we, for example, when we talk about impact and we talk about what success looks like at, at Microsoft, we talk about it in terms of three rings. So it's not just your individual impact. It's how did you contribute to the success of others? And how did you leverage the work of others? So the three circles we look at, individual, leveraging the work of others, as well as contributing to the success of others. So we are measured and evaluated on not what 
Alice's individual contributions are because I can't do it in a vacuum. A company is not successful because of one individual. A company is only successful when individuals work together as a team on common goals. So if my personal agenda or goals or priorities don't align with the company, you know what? I'm really just wasting my time, wasting my Absolutely. And, you know, that brings me to to the role of managers. It's key for managers and leaders, back to what I said, one of those principles of creating clarity. And part of that creating clarity is being clear about what are the collective goals. Yes, we all have a individual way uh opportunity to contribute to that, but we are not successful by ourselves. I don't know. It is not, it's nothing that I do in any of my activities that I can say, I do it by myself. I have to work with, with my team. I have to work with the business partners and other stakeholders. We have to collectively work together. You just can't get it done by yourself. And, you know, I've had some uh, at various points in my uh, manager career, I've had to have some uh, tough conversations sometimes with individuals and say, look, if you may measure yourself as being successful, but if the team isn't successful, it's really irrelevant whether you deem your part successful if the entire team is not successful. You know, we, you know, for those, you know, we coming into March Madness, for example, and you could have a star player and, and a star player may score 40 or 60 points in a basketball game. But if the team is a team, still a team sport. And if the others didn't contribute and as a team, it doesn't matter. Oh, I got the most score points of anybody in the game. If the team didn't win, it's irrelevant how many points I individually scored if the team didn't win. That's right. Another question from the audience, how has the chief accounting role at Microsoft expanded and become more strategic? One of the great things that I enjoy about uh, working at Microsoft, Olivia, is that the chief accounting role isn't in Microsoft just a technical accounting role in that doing things that may be more um, typically attributed to accounting officer role, technical accounting, doing the the SEC filings, uh, maybe some service centers uh, work, uh, transactional service center management, maybe some tax activities and things like that. But why I do enjoy the role at Microsoft and working for Microsoft is that I have an opportunity to really utilize accounting only as a tool to help us solve business problems. And so I get to be at the table as business decisions are being made. And so it's very difficult to to tell the line, where is, quote, the business person, where is the accounting person, where is the person that's doing more finance? Because back to your previous question about team, we all working 
for one common goal. And so I love the opportunity that I have to really engage in real business problems. Um, I recently took on took on a, a new team uh, as I have all of workplace services now too within my remit. And some may ask, well, why does, how does kind of workplace services fit in with the chief accounting officer? But one of the things that we have been able to develop the discipline for in our role is how do you scale operations and processes with the proper controls in it. And that has become even more uh, critical as we look at what's happening from a hybrid workspace, how we manage our real estate portfolio as we look at kind of leases and now we're doing a lot more accounting within the real estate uh, organization. We're doing a lot more buy versus lease analysis, a lot more calculations around how do, do we stay in a space. We're using a lot more data to make data-driven decisions. And so it's just a natural fit with some of the other activities that were already in the uh, accounting function. So it allows me there again, continue to grow and develop into something new. So never stay all day, as well as expand my presence outside of just close the books, file the 10Q, the 10K. Every day looks a little different and I get to do different things, helping the overall Microsoft be successful. Speaking of learning something new, you told the story earlier of the first meeting that you had when you joined the board. That was, I'm assuming, at, at Rockwell Automation. Yeah. Tell me about taking that on and, and why was it the right time to do that for you? Yeah, so a couple of... Um, reasons why I you know I kind of landed on now was the was the right time one I was um, I'm a person as I've kind of shared I like to continue to grow I like to do do different things uh, I like to continue to stretch stretch myself and so being on a board with the role that I'm in today I sat as a part of management across from the audit committee of the board routinely. So I had I have the experience of being on that side of the table. I saw the opportunity to be on the board also as an opportunity to bring something greater to the operating role that I'm in today. So by sitting on the other side of the table as a board member at another company, I got to bring something else back to my role. Then I also think about kind of back to, if I say what's the selfish side of it, as I mentioned, I like to continue to learn and grow. And then I began to think about, I have been in corporate America for a number of years and I get to think about what uh, what will my career look like when I am perhaps not in corporate America day to day. And so it's all about continuing to learn, grow, but tying it back to how can I continue to use that experience to drive greater impact in the role that I'm, I'm in today. And so in terms of timing, um, we looked at, you know, I would suggest this to anyone, no matter what stage you are in your career, to think about, you know, 
balancing out how much you take on and how much you take on realistically. So, for example, if you have just taken on a new role, for example, in your company, maybe you think about, well, maybe now I just took on a new role. Maybe now is not the time to be FEI chapter president, for example, if I just started a new role. I need to get this under control, balance, balance my workout. Uh, if I'm a if I'm a student, how do I balance my uh, course workload? If I'm taking 21 hours, maybe it's not the time that I want to be the accounting society president, for example. So it's really about finding that that balance. Remembering what's your core objective. You know, I'm in an operating role. My role that I serve on the board cannot compromise the role that I serve uh, at Microsoft. The same as if you're a student, your extracurricular activities that you engage in should not compromise the fact that you're a student and you're in school to get a degree versus all of the other things that come come with it be easier said than done. Absolutely. Uh, <laughs> you said in, in your role, you use accounting as a tool. And we know that you're a licensed CPA. You also have an MBA. Uh, one of the audience members asked, how important are CPAs and credentials for team members or, or for you personally? So I think for, for me personally, it is, it is critical that I have, you know, a certain level of knowledge that is current. And so having a CPA, there are some minimum requirements around uh, continuing education. And so that is somewhat of a forcing factor of itself to keep your knowledge current. Now, there are other ways that, you know, I do that you know, such as engaging with with my peers uh, on technical committees at at FEI. But if I step back and I say, okay, if I'm building before the, if I'm hiring someone new and all I have is the benefit of a 30, 45 minute, 60 minute interview, a certification is a differentiator it demonstrates that you have obtained a minimum amount of knowledge and that knowledge is current when you have a license. Not that just you took the CPA exam 10 years ago and that was it. But do you have an active license? So it's a differentiator. It's it's an entry ticket. Now, once you have that entry ticket, is then how do you use that knowledge? How do you apply that knowledge to real life situations that you use? And so if I look at the team that I had, even when I had um, just responsibility for what we call the corporate accounting team, is everyone in that team a CPA? No. Are there, are there great accountants who have evolved who are not CPAs? Absolutely, but that's generally the exception 
rather than the norm. So it's about building out a balanced team. So I will have some that are deeply technical, uh, that maybe have had similar backgrounds as myself. Maybe they've been with the, um, they've done fellowships uh, either with the with the SEC or with the FASB themselves, or maybe they have worked in other deeply technical roles at other companies. But then there's others who bring perhaps like system experiences to the role or data analytics. But I do believe whatever your specialty is, having a certification in that is a differentiator it's an entry ticket. Often when I talk to people who are newer in their career or who are evaluating whether, oh, should I get a CPA? Should I get my license or not? And I ask the question, would you go to a physician who said, you know what? I went to med school. I got a degree, but I didn't take my boards. Hmm. Would you think that that's a good doctor? If they didn't say, oh, don't worry, you know, I hung out a shingle, I didn't pass. Or if you need legal advice, would you seek out the legal advice from someone who who has passed their, the bar? Or would you seek out legal advice from someone that said that they got a degree in criminal justice from a university? And so having your certification is a differentiator. It's a demonstration of having a certain base level of technical aptitude. So I certainly recommend it. Another great question from the audience. What's one piece of advice you'd give someone that just stepped into a chief accounting or finance role? So I would, I would uh, give them the same advice that I would, I would give that I referenced earlier in this discussion about getting to know the team. So I would start with, you need to get to know the team. You need to understand what are your business challenges and you need to understand what are the emerging issues that the profession and the accounting uh, environment is going through as it applies to to your industry. And so I would, um, that's what I would, I would say, I would say, look, it's, you have to have a great team there again, like we said earlier, you can't do it by yourself. It's no, I, I can do. So it's important that you have and build out, you know, a great team. You understand your business and you understand what's happening in the regulatory environment. And then I would say also it's important to uh, connect uh, with other peers and network. It's, uh, we do that, uh, for example, through, through the technical committees at FEI, uh, through some of the other industry roundtables. I encourage uh, individuals to be, to be a part of because there is power in that sharing of information among, among peers. Another great question. How do you assist a team member who has excellent technical skills but lacks communication skills? A couple of ways, and I will say transparent because I mentioned um, that I am transparent. I found that it is, it is easier, it has been my experience, 
it is easier to teach the technical than to teach those things that we would subscribe, subscribe to being the softer skills. But if specifically as it relates to, to communication, there are a lot of kind of practical tools. There are a lot of courses that you could subscribe uh, to, you know, can participate in. Maybe it's something like Toastmasters. Uh, maybe it's something, you know, stepping back other than the actual communication is to uh, maybe something like a 360 degree feedback to kind of understand a little bit about who you are, what are those uh, opportunities for further development. So I think it's about understanding what is the blocker to the communication. And some of what the biggest area that I found to help people under, uh, improve their communication is to really understand their audience and to communicate at a level that is that their audience can can relate to. So, for example, uh, in in finance and accounting, being in the tech industry, we often are having conversations with engineers, different skill sets. If an engineer just tried to describe coding to me, I would probably have struggled with some of it. They would need to break it down into a much simpler, common language that I can understand. The same if we are having finance or accounting discussions, it the engineer does not care or need to know uh, ASC, you know, 606, for example, or 842. None of those things, you know, leasing and accounting, these standards is going to resonate or mean anything to someone who's not accountant. So don't start with communicating like that because you're going to lose them. And once you lose them, it's hard to bring them back. So you think about putting it in simple language, translating it to simple language. Now, if you're having a conversation and you're doing uh, for the accounting team, there's a different way you communicate because you all have a common language, a foundation that it's built on. So it's really important to say, who is my audience? That is the biggest thing I find that people communicate, uh, struggle with communicating. They don't know whether to take it up or bring it down in terms of how much detail can they bring it to what's the big picture? Or we like to say, what's the so what? Why should I care about it? Just regurgitating a bunch of technical language out of an accounting standard means nothing to most people. But you have to say, oh, well, why is that important? Well, if you structure this deal like this, it's structured like what it means with these terms is, oh, that revenue is not going to count now. You don't get to count that. You're not going to be compensated for that. Oh, I get it now. So it's about, un, you know, putting it and translating it to a language that the person you're communicating with will understand and start with why is it important? Why should it be important to them? Why should they care about it? It definitely comes back to that flexibility too. you know, being able to be flexible in your language and adapt Absolutely. to different situations. Um, 
we we've talked a little bit about you know the role of mentors in your life and and of course as you as a mentor uh another question that we got it seems that we are entering a period of economic uncertainty how do you keep your team focused and utilize your mentorship skills to shepherd them through all the distractions and stress one of a great question olivia Um, And I recognize that it is easier said than done. So I don't take it lightly, this comment. But you really have to focus on controlling the things that you can control. That's where you put put your energy. And so how can you, the things that you can control is, you know, how do you show up? at work every day? What's your impact every day? How are you contributing to to the business success? Those are the things that, that you can control. Is my skill has my skill set and the tools that I need to do that, has it continued to evolve over time? Is my is, is my knowledge stale? Do I have current skills? Those are the things that that you can control. Now, how do you manage through that that period of anxiety, angst that might exist? Then you have to find tools about self-care too. Becomes really, really critical is how do I how do I recharge? What do I do to get regrounded? So for example, um, I took I recently took some vacation. And I disconnected for a large period of that time. Now, some might say, you know what? I know, I know we have some students who tune in. Look, I can't, I can't go on vacation. Uh, but you can have, you can have a staycation. You can have a moment to find something to do that you enjoy. And maybe that's simple. We're in the Northwest. Maybe that's getting outside for a hike. <laughs> You know, maybe that's watching your favorite television show. However you find a way to recharge, do that. But then you kind of, you know, you ask the question about mentees uh, in the mentorship and how can that play is if you are having a challenge or you're struggling with, you know what, I am feeling uh, overwhelmed. Uh those are conversations when you have a great mentor relationship that you can have those conversations with your with your mentor. What are some tools? And maybe your mentor can say, give you some other insight that maybe you wouldn't have had visibility to to help you feel you know feel better, recharge, and navigate through it. But yes, we are we are during this time. There's more uncertainty than at other times, but you know, it's always something. So, you know, it's the things we're going through today, tomorrow, it will be something else. And so it's all about getting those tools to help you back to being flexible, navigate through changes and and being adaptable. I think it really is so important to understand how you personally recharge. And it's different for everybody. I guess Absolutely. that's obvious, but it really is. Um, 
we only have a couple more minutes, Alice, but, and of course, <clears throat> I knew we'd get great audience participation, so that's wonderful. Um, a couple that I want to make sure we get to. I want to know what you like about working at a large organization like Microsoft. Oh, that is a loaded question, Olivia. You know, um, I enjoy, you know, I have to, I have to personalize it because uh, each company, you know, companies are different, you know, they're, you know, each large company is, is really different. But what I really enjoy about working at a company like Microsoft is you have to really for what I found, let me just say for me, is really believe in the mission of the company and what are we trying to do. And so the fact that we are trying to help everybody on the planet achieve more. And so I, because I believe in the mission of what we're trying to do as a company, our, our goals, I'm excited to come and be a part of that. Uh, I'm excited to be to work with great team members every day, every single day. Uh, brings me energy. I'm excited about the opportunity of what lies ahead for the company. You know, uh, some of the innovative products in the market, how we're doing it just really excited about I'm excited that it's a company that I that really stands behind and and while we certainly you know have um, an aspire to culture and and we're constantly striving to be there but a company that really puts its value system lives it puts it into play holds people accountable and every day I get to work on on a different problem. So there is never a dull moment. Every day there is something new, there is something different, and there are no two days al alike is why I enjoy working working at Microsoft. When you look into the future, what do you sort of imagine for what how finance and accounting is going to evolve? So one of the things that has been clear about the, the evolution is the role of that technology will play in in a finance professional accountant professional career whether that is say for example how you might if you're in public accounting how you might conduct your audit you know if you are um, working for an individual company closing its books how you will use technology to close the books if you're in a finance you know role then how you will use technology to do your to do your analysis what types of uh, decisions will you have to make based upon now what's available via AI or artificial intelligence so uh, the profession is evolving to just so much more of a technical focus to a technology focus, not just technical, knowing the standards, but to be a great finance professional, you need to have certain other technical skills. And then the expectation around not just uh, 
a think tank in a vacuum, but a think tank that can really help solve problems and make and make changes and have real business results is how I see the profession evolving and continuing to be influenced by what what is important to to the users and what's important to to continue to uh, have a, a stable capital market system those things will continue to influence the the profession I got another question from the audience. What's your typical work week in total hours? <laughs> I'm sure it's different every week. <laughs> I absolutely don't know. <laughs> and the reason I say I don't know is because of the flexible hybrid arrangement in the way that I work. Um, there are some days that are certainly uh, that are shorter than others, and there are some that are longer. You know, it would depend upon you know what's what's happening. Do I work um, every weekend? Absolutely not. Do I work some weekends? Absolutely. So I don't know. I've never sat and just say how many hours I I work because I do have. Uh, you know, I may get up early and uh, I'm an early riser back to how I started. It's kind of ingrained in me as a child. I get up early. So I personally, uh, now that I have team members around the world, I may do some work um, 4.30 in the morning. Uh you know, because I have, for example, my HR business partner, she's three hours time zone ahead of me. So we may have conversations earlier in the morning. And then I have the flexibility. Uh, I mean, go to the gym, I try to get a workout in. So I'll stop. So I'll do some work at home. I'll stop and go to the gym. And then if it's the day when I'm going to come into the office, such as today, then I get ready. I come in the office. I do some work in the office. I might take another break. And then I do some more work, maybe. Sometimes I might stay in the office later. And when I leave the office, I'm done. So it just it just depends. So I've never counted. I think that's, that's a good the, sign. <laughs> also, what's... You, when when you enjoy what you do, yeah, it's not measured in how many hours you put in. It's it's really measured by by your sense of achievement. Totally agree. We've really run out of time, Alice, but I want to ask this one last question because it made me laugh. Somebody asked a personal question for Alice: Are you a dog person or a cat person? <laughs> I am neither. <laughs> I am not a pet person at all. You don't all. have time for pet. For if any I pet. had to choose one, I would choose a dog mm -hmm. over a cat. Cats are too quiet and sneaky for me. <laughs> <laughs> Can't trust a cat. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, I'm sorry to those that, whose questions we didn't get to, but I really want to thank the the attendees for submitting such great, thoughtful questions. And um, Alice, it's been such a pleasure. There's so many important takeaways from this this conversation for really all ages and stages. So I, I appreciate uh, your your great answers and uh, your transparency. 
And I, I think the audience will agree with me. We really feel like we, we got to know you really well. Thank you, Olivia. It has been a pleasure chatting with you. Me too. Thanks, everybody. Thanks. Thanks.